Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in uh, Genesis 39 tonight. So when we last left Joseph, he had been sent off as a slave to Egypt. And then we zap back to the story of Judah and all his shenanigans. And now in chapter 39, we're back with Joseph, and I'm just going to dig right in with verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. I think it's interesting how the Bible sums up a person's life because a few years have passed here when we see his age again. Uh, He's going to be with Potter for for quite a long time. And it just says the Lord was with him. And that's pretty much what's relevant about this season of his life. Um, Which from a human perspective, we have to live through those seasons where God just says he was with you and years can pass and nothing particularly interesting happens. Um, And he gets to be a slave in, in, in Egypt. The Lord being with him, uh, does not give Joseph immunity from problems. He's a slave and he's going to end up in jail. Um, and the Bible still categorizes that as the Lord was with him. And I think that's cool too. So a lot of times we think if, if we're believers that we're immune from some sort of hardships, and that's not the biblical message. In fact, it's quite the opposite from what we've seen so far. James 1, 2 starts off with, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. 1 John 4.17 says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world, that we will be judged and that we will have to have that. And what we can pray for is boldness. What we're going to see with Joseph is how he reacts to this situation um, and how he reacts to something we all share, which is we all have problems in our life. And Joseph's going to handle those, pro- pro- uh, those problems like a boss. Um, and we can look to him as an example on how to do that. So God being with the person is more likely to have us heading towards trials than away from them. If we want to be used by God, perfected by God, then we're asking to get trained by God. And that can mean trials, and that can mean tough seasons for us to be prepared for ministry. Joseph is heading then towards his trials at this point, and we see how he thrives in every step. So... My summary of this before we even get into it is that he's going to have a consistent practice with everybody he meets. So when we look at chapter 39, we're going to see Joseph's practice when he's in a place that's pulling him towards sin. And then in chapter 40, we're going to see that the same practice is in place when he's in a place that's pulling him towards God's plan. So he's going to run away from Potiphar's wife and he's going to end up in Pharaoh's court at the end of chapter 40. And I think the two chapters mirror each other perfectly, so we're going to try to nail both chapters tonight. <clears throat> Real quickly, but we've come back to all these, there's a six-step plan of life for everybody Joseph deals with. 
One, he serves with humility. Two, he declares God at the front of his life. Three, he avoids wicked people or with the good side, he speaks boldly into people's lives that want to hear from him. Number four, he runs away from sin or on the positive side, he gives responsibility over to the people he trusts. Number five, he accepts the, accepts the consequences of running away from sin or on the flip side, he accepts the results of following God and he rejoices. And verse and step seven is the same for both sides of that equation. Rinse and repeat, he has faith. So every time Joseph goes through this, his faith just keeps building. So serve, declare God, be bold, give over responsibility, accept the results, and rinse and repeat. Verse 3, And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Step 1, serve. And then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had put all that he had, he put under his authority. So what Potiphar sees is likely what Israel saw too. Uh, notice the elements are the same. Uh, it says the Lord was with him. Uh, Adon Ra'ah is uh, the Hebrew. Actually, the Hebrew is even cooler than that. Um, it says, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord made all he did to do is prosper at his hands. That's only actually six words in the Hebrew. It's Adon Ra'ah, Yehovah, Yehovah, Aslak, Salak. And it's, it's a really cool sentence in that it repeats Jehovah twice, that first that verse 3. Um, and in our book, it just says, Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he do, but that's actually only two words. Um, so that whole sentence puts Jehovah in the middle of what's going on there. Um, and Jehovah's going to be at the middle of everything he does. Two, he finds favor. Joseph learned and knew his business. So he becomes a slave, enters into Potiphar's house, and the next thing you know, he's running the household. So this is a guy who likes to manage things and he's extremely good at it. And he's learning how to work with people. With his family, he learned how to work with shepherds and everyone in the camp. And here he's learning how to work with other slaves. So Joseph works hard. He does it with humility. Um, and Potiphar actually raises his standing to be the head of all the slaves. Um, and I'm saying this as both an employee, but also having been a principal and an apartment chair and being a boss in two different situations, all you're looking for is good, hardworking people, people that know what they're doing and you can trust them to do their job, make your job much easier. So I can almost res resonate with Potiphar. You bring in this slave and he actually knows what he's doing and he works hard when you're not looking. Like he's doesn't matter if you're watching or not. He just puts a work in and does it. And suddenly you think, wow, this is a good guy. I want to have this guy around. In fact, I want to put him in charge because I can trust him. And I think that's part of what happens with Joseph uh, across the board is he's a trustworthy guy. So it was, verse 5, from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus, he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. We'll come back to the handsome part. He was a good-looking fellow, but that's relevant to the next part of the story. Before we move on, why did Potiphar like him so much? Essentially, Potiphar, it sounds like, is retiring because he trusts Joseph so much. So if all he's worried about is the food at his hand, it means he's completely trusting Joseph with his whole household, which is an odd thing to do with a slave. It doesn't mention any kids of Potiphar, so you wonder if to some degree Potiphar's kind of taken him under his wing, like this is a guy who can kind of take over for me which says a lot about Joseph and his character. And it reminded me of 
when Jesus was age 12 and as a young man, he was in the temple. And remember the elders of the temple were really impressed with him. Like, wow, this is quite a young guy. Luke 2, 46 says, now so it was after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So the old Pharisees and Sadducees are sitting in the temple talking with a 12-year-old kid, and they're kind of putting questions at him, and they're impressed with how Jesus responds to him. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and found favor with God and men. Joseph's doing the same thing. It's a very similar storyline. Uh, he starts with his time with a slave owner, and he's giving willing service, just like he did to his dad. Um, the Joseph being handsome part explains the next few verses. And it came to pass after these things that his master, Potiphar's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what it is, does not know what is with me in the house, and he's committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me. But because you're his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph is likely in his late teens, early 20s at this point. Uh, remember Reuben, his older brother, kind of fell for this situation with his stepmom. Uh, in fact, there's every indication in the ancient world that house slaves and owners of the house would often have sex with each other. It was just a, it was like you were not cheating on your spouse if you had your sex with the slaves. Um, Joseph being a slave, saying no, puts him in a precarious situation. So he's trying to use logic and explain things with Potiphar's wife. Um, unlike Reuben, when he was trying to stop Joseph from getting killed, Joseph doesn't make weak excuses. He makes a really strong excuse. And, it's, and notice the very end of that line, it says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? If he says, I just don't want to do this or I don't have time, she can keep coming back on that. But if he puts it in front of God, he puts God out in front with her, then she has to, then there's really no way around it. It's not like it matters who's around or whatnot. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, so Joseph essentially says, I don't care what everybody else is doing. It's wicked and God sees me doing it. So step number two, he puts God up front. He explains his loyalties. This takes a ton of courage. So that hardworking nature in step one, but this second part when he's with her, it takes a lot of courage. And he cites, Jesus does the same thing when he's tempted. He cites scripture back to Satan and that sort of thing. Uh, Joseph's basically appealing to God. Verse 10, so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her, which makes you wonder where Potiphar is because if she's doing this every day, um, that's kind of a tough thing. And so his solution to this um, is that he doesn't heed her or listen to her. He's just, he's trying to not hang around with her. Like the Psalms say, don't, uh, don't sit with sinners or stand with scoffers or uh, walk with mockers or whatever order that goes in. Uh, he tries to avoid them. This takes some kind of strength of character. Uh, so he works hard, he explains his loyalties, and he's not going to hang around with sinners. But that doesn't work because she keeps coming in verse 11. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left it, his garment in her hand, and he fled and ran outside. 
I've heard whole sermons on just these two verses where they talk about, boy, if you're into sin and sin's got you, just run. Get the heck away from it. Turn a 180 and go the other direction. Um, Even if it means that she's going to get his garment, which means he's probably running outside in his skivvies because they would have just wore a robe in this culture. So he runs away. Step four. Um, the, the, The request to sin keeps getting stronger. His response to sin keeps getting stronger which takes a trust in the Lord because now um, Potiphar's wife at first when she's making the request, it's not an assault on Joseph. She likes Joseph. She wants Joseph to sin with her. But when he says, no, I don't want to because of God and she keeps asking, that's essentially an attack on his character with an invitation. She's being nice. And it's not a huge step now to attack Joseph with slander because she's already disregarded his preferences. Right? She's dehumanized him at this point already, objectified him. Um, and so when he runs away, she's going to get bitter and angry. You all know this story, which is why I'm kind of moving through it. Uh, and so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke with them saying, See, he's brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out in a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So now she's lying about him. Um, And again, that's not a huge step. She was already attacking him and now she's just going to lie about him. Notice that she doesn't go to her husband first. She gathers other people around her before she goes for the full attack. Um, She called to the men of her house. So she's hurting. Psychologists call this hurting behavior. When someone doesn't like someone else, they try to get other people to agree with them in not liking that other person. So they gather as many people as they can, and then the group goes to try to get this person killed or put out of the house. Um, So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant to whom you brought us came in to mock me. So it happened, I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and I fled outside. It says word like, words like these because the narrator wouldn't have been in the room. So I think it's one of those interesting little things that Joseph's not, if Joseph is the one later writing this and putting it down on a scroll, that he's being honest about the fact that he didn't hear exactly what was said. So she goes to Potiphar to get him fired or at least get Potiphar angry enough to kill him or get rid of him or something. So it was. When his master heard the words of which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph. And we saw that at the beginning of this story. And there's a nice little bookend at the end. But the Lord was with Joseph. So yes, this is the story of Joseph's life. The Lord keeps using these situations. The Lord has a plan for him. Um, It looks like he's surrounded, but like the song says, but he's actually surrounded by God. God's got him exactly where he wants him. So there's no energy here spent on complaining. In fact, there's not one word of complaint from Joseph, even though he seems to be the narrator. It seems like he's waiting outside because there isn't a hunt for Joseph and they don't have to chase him down. It's like he just ran out of the building and kind of took a seat outside while he was being accused inside and just waited for his judgment to come from Potiphar. So he doesn't run. Um, He's just going to let the world do what the world is going to do, but he's still not going to have sex with Potiphar's wife. 
Um, so I think that gives us a little glimpse inside his heart, what kind of man Joseph was, the fact that he's stuck by his morals. Um, also, he was bound, thrown in a pit, and sold as a slave, and then he got raised to head of household, just like he was back home. And I think that's part of where Joseph has faith. No matter what, he either dies, like he gets killed by Potiphar, or he's going to go to jail and God's going to put him somewhere else. Um, so Joseph has some faith here, and we'll see evidence of that later when he talks to the prisoners. There's no defense. There's none recorded, at least. It doesn't matter if you're accused unjustly. Um, he holds his tongue, and we've seen lots of Christians, including Jesus, that held his tongue when he was accused unjustly. And I hope none of you have to go through being accused of something unjustly. I mean, that's just a horrible situation. And to my memory, Grant and Katie never accused each other of anything unjustly in their whole childhood, which is kind of cool. But I hope you never have to go through it. Mark 15, the chief priests accused Jesus of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many of these people testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Part of when we hold our tongue when there's some sort of situation, um, I think that's part of where the world marvels at believers, that it is not normal for us to not defend ourselves. It's the worldly way that when something bad happens to us, we immediately try to defend ourselves. Um, but a lot of times in the Christian community, we try to not be defensive. We do what we're going to do. We speak boldly in the name of Christ. And if the world wants to do something to us for that, then they does. Um, if you need to, just sit on the floor with him so he's got company. Uh, <clears throat> uh, there are a few different occasions when the Bible tells us to that when there's unju unjust treatment of us, we're to take it. When there's unjust treatment of others, we're supposed to advocate for those people. And I think a lot of times when nobody's there to advocate for the believer, that that's the, one of the most powerful testimonies we have. But that idea of justice seems to be something we should be fighting for it, but we shouldn't fight for it for ourselves. And that's fairly consistent. Matthew 6, 19 says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and neither thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. So if there's nothing on this earth that we claim, then there's nothing to fight for. 2 Samuel 14 says, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled for him. Even if they take away our lives, that's still something that we, where we can live for God. Philippians 2.17 says, Yes, and I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, and I'm glad and I will rejoice in it with you all. I think this is all part of what jo Joseph was probably thinking as he sat outside and inside the house, there's Potiphar's wife with all the other slave people. Just like when his brothers were all teaming up and talking about him and getting ready to cast him out, Joseph had to be sitting there thinking, Lord, I have faith in you, I trust you, but why is it everywhere I go, I get groups of people that hate me? And all I try to do is serve and be nice. And I still get cast out. And he's in the same situation. He's going to get cast out. And to try to think in terms of... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm so distracted by the dog. 
I think that thought is just really powerful that, I mean, he had to be brokenhearted because here he is again after just being a good and faithful servant and trying to be kind and nice and caring that once again, he's in the exact same situation. Only now it's all his fellow slaves and Potiphar's wife trying to throw him out and get him cast out all over again. Um, It had to break his heart. Um, But you don't see any evidence of that. That's all my thinking of trying to put myself in his head, but the Bible doesn't give us any evidence of that. There's no reason to put up with sin. You serve people. You declare that you live for God. You avoid the wicked stuff. You run when you have to. And when you can't run, he just sits and he takes his chops. And he rejoices at that point, and I think we should too. We're in pretty good companies with the saints when that's our situation. And hopefully it never happens to us, but it does happen. So verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made a prosper. So wait, just in a couple verses, they do it a third time. So Joseph gets thrown in prison and the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And that must be years at a time going by. And then all of a sudden he has favor again. And now he's running the prison. So... Joseph must be an extremely good manager of people, extremely trustworthy and extremely hardworking because once again, he's running things. And you don't just run things. Remember last time we talked about Joseph, I kind of challenged the idea that he was an arrogant, pompous little jerk and that's why his brothers hated him. There's no evidence of that because everywhere he goes, he's not treated as an arrogant, pompous little jerk. Everywhere he goes, people put him in charge of running everything. Like, you can run my household. I totally trust you. You don't do that with arrogant, pompous people. You do that with hardworking, humil- humble people, right? So once again, he's in prison, and now he's running the prison. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. So now I had to ask the question, wait a second. How do you prosper as a prison head? Like, what has to happen for that sentence to happen? So um, Potiphar didn't look after anything other than his own food. And now the jailer trusts him enough to let him run his prison. And remember jailers in this era, if somebody got away or something went wrong, they killed the jailers. And they do that all the way up through the Roman era, right? So this idea that jailers are ultimately responsible with their own lives to do this. Also, I thought it was kind of cool. This is the first record. This is the book of Genesis. This is the first prison ministry. So Joseph's bringing Jehovah into the jails and he's doing that. So how do you prosper as a prisoner? First of all, I think Joseph must have had an amazing way with people. He must have been kind, gracious, a good listener. He must have noticed when prisoners were getting their emotions up and been able to handle that emotional side of things. So there had to be a servant there. Um, Prisoners are typically broken, cynical, or defiant. Those are the three most common personality types. Or, number four, repentant. So Joseph could go in there, and other than being cynical, um, broken, or defiant, he gives them a fourth option, which is to be repentant. And Joseph's doing this kind of work with these prisoners, and for that, I think that's what would have to happen for that sentence to appear. Because the Lord was with them, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. That suddenly the jail cells got these people in it that are joyful 
and working on their their personal skills and starting to do things well and suddenly the floors are getting swept and there's no more gum wrappers on the floor and you know things like that and and all of a sudden the lunchtime goes by and nobody's throwing food at each other and if they have lunchtime in these prisons I don't know um, but I think that that's amazing and what he's doing here is probably his greatest feat so far because this is totally different than what he grew up doing for his dad nobody another way to be successful as a prison head is that nobody tries to escape so he must be talking to people saying no if you're guilty pay your dues he had to be counseling people to not try to escape um, the Lord's spirit then is feeding Joseph and Joseph then can feed the spirit of the souls of the prisoners that's the only way to have a prison prosper because it's not like they're doing anything maybe it was a workhouse prison but even then Joseph's counseling the prisoners to work hard like work hard for the glory of God, not because you want to get out of prison or anything like that. So there's an intimacy here. I, it's easy to read over these sentences, but if you think about what kind of miracle this is, that God made him successful in a prison. That's incredible. So if I ever go to jail and you come visit me and there's the glass wall thing there, and you're like, how you doing? I just pray I can have the same kind of grace that Joseph did and said, okay, God put me in a prison. So now I'm going to teach about the Lord to people in prisons. And we're going to do Bible studies in prison with all the prisoner people. And we'll try to cook some food and we'll all have gourmet slop. And uh, it'll be a great prison time. And I have friends in Madison that are doing prison ministry right now. And they're, they're blessed by the fact that they're working with these prisoners. They finished their term and now all these prisoners are coming to their church. So that it's changing the face of the church. And a number of these prisoners were former musicians. So it's really helped their worship team out a lot because you got these prisoners singing, I'm free, and they mean it, you know? So it's kind of a neat thing. Anyways, just this idea of Joseph, the prison minister. The other way you can be successful in a prison, you can see I spent a lot of time on this. Another way for a prison to be successful is that it's clean and there isn't sickness. Because if prisoners are dying, that's not the purpose of a prison because they were perfectly okay to kill people if they didn't want them alive. Prisons were to keep people alive for as long as possible. Another reason for prison back then was for paying debts. So Joseph must have been helping with some of the financial management to help some of these people's families get the debts get paid and keep the prison cleaned out. Um, so that's an area of success that wouldn't be recorded, but you think of the kind of skills that would have to have. So I just thought it was neat. Last point on the prison, <laughs> Genesis 41.12 the butler, remember he has the dreams with the butler and the baker? In 41.12, you flip forward, the way the butler remembers Joseph is he remembered him as a servant of the captain of the guard. And that's, oh yeah, there was this servant of the captain of the guard. So the butler remembers him not as a fellow prisoner. He remembers him as a servant that was running the prison, right? And you'll see when he goes to the butler and the baker, he's checking in on him like, hey, how's your day? You look sad today. What can I do to help you? So this is a guy who went around and checked in on everybody all the time. And you think, wow, Joseph, he's not just sitting in a cell wallowing. He's using it as an opportunity to minister. Um, we're free people, but how many times do we take the opportunity to minister to the people around us? And we have our freedom and Joseph didn't. So in all of this, Joseph prays, he follows the Lord, and the Lord adds to his list of success a third major chapter of his life, Joseph, the awesome prisoner. Um, Jacob was totally right to promote Joseph over his brothers. Apparently, Joseph had skills. Potiphar was totally right to promote him over his fellow slaves. 
because it's clear Joseph has skills. And they would have prospered under him, and they did. Going right into chapter 40, again, the chapters are added later. The story just keeps going right in there, and it came to pass. So at first, he's the, in this chapter, he was the chief of sheep, the chief of slaves. Now he's the chief of prisoners, and we're going to see him move from this position through this story. It came to pass after these things, what we just got done talking about, that the butler and the baker, it sounds like a nursery rhyme, of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. That's not good. And the pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. These would have been people that ran that part of the household. They would have been ones that dealt directly with the pharaohs, so they would have been aristocrats, or at least they would have spoke the language of the extremely wealthy and opulent they would have been snooty butlers and bakers. They would not have been lowbrow people working in the back kitchens. They'd be the people that dealt directly with Pharaoh. So he put them in custody, verse 3, in the house of the captain of the guard. Who was the captain of the guard? Potiphar was. Very good. Last chapter, 39.1. In the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. It just so happens these two people get stuck there. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. I'm very impressed you remembered that. I totally missed it. Because I was like, okay, well, who's the captain? And I... So Potiphar likely didn't believe his wife entirely um, because he put him in his own prison and let him run the prison. It seems like Potiphar was just getting Joseph out of the household. But that reputation went with him, and Potiphar's clearly not on that bad of terms with him because he's letting him run his own prison. So the captain of the guard takes the baker and the butler in, puts him in his prison where Joseph is in charge. Um, these two would have been uh, hard to take care of. If they're used to... So I always imagine the pharaoh living in the pyramids, but they didn't actually live in pyramids. There would have been a large palace ground and everything like that. They didn't just sit on top of the pyramids and hang out. Um, so, But they would have been used to that palace lifestyle. So going into a prison would have been... They, I'm thinking they would be high, highly demanding people. The other thing is, if Pharaoh's trying to sort out what to do with these two, which we see later, you don't want to tick them off because they've got the ear of the Pharaoh. So this is kind of a big deal for Potiphar. Like, you don't want to put them into a prison and have them mistreated. Like, they got beat up while they were in prison. Because then when Pharaoh pulls one of them out, that would have been an opportunity to, to do it. So this is a huge responsibility that he trusts them with. So what does Joseph do? He's got a tough boss. He serves them. He's got competitive coworkers. He serves them. What do you do with your family? You serve your family, your friends. He serves his friends. Joseph is always serving people. So when you've got two people coming into your household that need to be taken care of, who do you call on to do that? Joseph. He just gives of himself all the time. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, verse 5, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night and each man's dream with his own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. And that's the part where I was like, so Joseph actually notices the mood of his prisoners. He doesn't just throw food at them and go to the next cell. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house saying, why do you look so sad today? So his expectation of prisoners was to be happy like, think about that sentence. Don't all prisoners look sad in the morning? But he comes in and he's like, why are you so sad? What's wrong? What's going on? 
Like you should be trying to handle this joyfully. God's with us today. Um, this is also says something. If Joseph were mad or angry about being put on duty in the jail, we don't see any evidence of it. He's not self-concerned. He's not bitter. He's not angry. Because bitter, angry, self-concerned people don't say, why do you look so sad to that's just not the attitude of someone who's upset about things. This is kind of a miracle, and the miracle of a godly heart is to find joy wherever you're at. So in the face of injustice to himself, Joseph still cares for other people. I keep making that point, but I think it's a huge theme when we see these little tips and things. Verse 8, And then they said to him, We each have had a dream, and there's no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not the interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. So, again, I said I think these two chapters mirror each other. And I've already made the point of service, that he's serving people at the opening of chapter 40. But look what just happened here. They interact with him, and the first thing he does is he puts God at the front of the relationship. It's like the first interaction he has with them. It says, don't, God, don't, don't dreams belong to God? Please tell them to me. So this ministry that he's having, in this case, they're not trying to draw him into sin. They're just entering into conversation with him. But he still puts God in front, just like he does with Potiphar's wife. So I think that's kind of cool. I always like that when you get a new job, the first thing you do is you, you give people, everyone you know hints that you're a church-going God-type person. And even secular people kind of get that. Oh, you're a God person. We got it. You want to come drinking with us on Friday? Sure, I'll have a cherry Coke. What are you guys drinking? Well, no, we're going to drink some alcohol. I don't really get into that. And just whatever way you can find to do that and just say, I'm kind of, you know, for the sake of my God, I'm not drinking a lot right now. Or maybe you do. I don't know. All dreams are not from God, but God, frankly, I never took like a covenant or oath to not drink. Like Bethel has that thing, right? I stopped drinking before that because I wanted to have something be different in my life than the people I worked with. And they were so enamored with alcohol. Like it has some magic superpower that makes your Friday nights better than other nights. And I was always just kind of like, I wanted to be with them so I could minister to them, but to just not drink at a table where other people were, it blows their mind. And you can still be a friend with them and minister into their life and be their designated driver a lot. So I just think it's a good way to get to say that same message that, hey, I'm, a, I'm just a Jesus person. It's what I do. And, and to uh, be different in some way, shape, or form. Because there were lots of people that would interpret dreams for these people. All dreams are not from God, but God uses dreams throughout the Bible to guide his plan. I'll give you a few examples. We've already seen one. Remember, God went to Abimelech, a non-believer, and said, let Sarah go in Genesis 20. In Genesis 31, God went to Laban and said, be nice to Jacob, don't beat him up. Right? And then... He's going to go to Pharaoh in chapter 41. We got that coming up in a little bit. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel interprets his dream. Um, so this is there's a large pattern of God going to non-God people and putting dreams in their head that unsettle them so that the godly person can come speak into their life. Of course, he goes to godly people too. Judges 7, he goes to Gideon and says, attack now. Um, he goes in Matthew 2, he goes to the other Joseph and says, hey, Mary's telling you the truth. She is on the up and up with all this. So dreams can be a, a tool for God. That said, the Bible also warns that there's false prophets that use dreams to give weight to their messages. They say they dreamed a dream or they heard a voice from God and they're lying. 
That's Deuteronomy 13, Jeremiah 23. So we have lots of examples in the Bible where it warns us against people that say, I had a dream, and they're really just putting their own will and putting God's name next to it. So dreams are a tricky thing, and unless you are 100% certain it's a God dream, I'd be just cautious with that and, and use some discernment. Likewise, it is likely that Joseph already knew what was going on here, which is, so why did he come up to the cell? It could be that Joseph already knew the interpretations of the dreams, because remember with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar said, nah, nah, nah. I'm not going to tell you what my dream was. If you're really from God, you can tell me my dream and the interpretation of it. You remember that? So there's one thought might be that Joseph already knows darn well that these two had a bad dream last night, and he already knows the interpretation of it. So it could be that like Jesus, he's coming up with a question where he kind of already knows the answer, um, and maybe he came up to their cells to do that. And I wish I knew what the cells looked like. Like, I'd like to know what a pre, you know, 1500 BC jail cell looked like. Is this really just like behind the storehouses or is this a full on jail kind of complex with bars? We don't know. So, all right, I'll keep going. These are rattling the butler and baker. They had a bad night. They woke up, they're visibly shooken. Uh, they need to have God in their life. Joseph has already been a servant to them. He's already put God first. And now he's trying to engage with the people instead of running away from Potter's first wife he runs towards the prisoners, right? Because one person wants to take them to sin, another person wants to hear from what God has to say in their life. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said, behold, in my dream, a vine was before me. By the way, I'm not looking up a lot of the Hebrew in this stuff because it pretty much reads like a story. I mean, there's not much to look up here. I went in and looked up vine and I looked up branches and sure enough, in the Hebrew, they mean vine and branches. I mean, it's not, there was, they're just, I, it's not that I didn't look them up. It's just that there wasn't much here that I thought was that interesting. And in the vine were the, were three branches and it was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. And then the Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and then placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So Pharaoh is clearly not drinking alcohol either. This is fresh grape juice. Just a thought. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. In the three branches are three days. So now within the three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place where you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. The three branches are the three days. So these days will be well spent. They will bear fruit. The butler will take this fruit and give it to Pharaoh. And I think that's kind of cool. Um, these three days that the butler gets to spend with Joseph are three days that are actually, according to the dream, bearing blossoms and fruit. In other words, there's good things happening to you while you were in the jail. And if Joseph's the kind of jail leader we think he is, he's probably saying that to this too, is, oh, we get three days together. Let me tell you about the Lord. And this can be a really good thing in your life and help you be a different kind of person. And Joseph's going to use those days as best he can. Um, our trials, like the butler, can bear fruit too. Um, um, and then another thought about Joseph, if I were going to be someone that were, if I was going to try to weasel my way out of slavery in prison, thinking this butler can help me get out because the next few verses he's going to ask for a favor. If I were doing that, I would make a prophecy that was like three years down the road, three days down the road. You don't make that kind of prophecy. That makes no sense. Because what if you're wrong? It's only going to take three days to figure out you're wrong. 
So there's a total confidence here that Joseph's right, um, which you would only do if you thought you had actually heard from God. Um, otherwise, this wouldn't be a good strategy at all. So in verse 14, he asks for the favor. But remember me when it's well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. <laughs> so it, he doesn't complain, but he's also not naive. He's not. He doesn't like being a slave. Um, so he's seeing an opportunity where God can be working, and he's and he's trying to play along with that, because if this is how God's going to get him out, he just wants to make sure he does his part. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and I have done nothing here that they should put me in a dungeon. Notice the confidence. Pharaoh will, you will, um, when it is well with you. So he he's saying things or speaking to the baker like, this is a certainty. Um, we see Joseph's side of the story for the first time. Uh, he's not defensive here. He's not vengeful. He's not trying to get back at anybody, and he doesn't name anybody. He just states the facts. This is what happened. It quickly summarizes in a few sentences all of chapter 37 and all of chapter 39 with no accusations. I think that's really classy. This is the kind of guy I'd want to be my friend. Heck, this is the kind of guy you even want to have as your enemy because he doesn't attack. For indeed, verse 15, I was stolen away from the land of Hebrews, and I've done nothing here that they should put me in just in, in the dungeon. Joseph knows that the Lord is at work. He makes this request to be hoping that he gets free, um, hoping that he can do his thing. Um, he won't get out that quick, though. That, that's not what God has in mind for him. He's still going to be in this position for another couple of years. Verse 16, the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good. He said to Joseph... Okay, before I get on with the the baker, I think this is really funny. Um, So he has a dream with three things in it too. And he's like, wow, that was a great interpretation. I want, now I want you to hear my dream too. And notice that Joseph uh, um, isn't a soothsayer, uh, which is to soothe people with your predictions. Uh, He's a truthsayer. He's quite the opposite. And with the butler, being a truthsayer was a great thing. With the baker being a truth-sayer is not a good thing. So Joseph, like he was with his brothers, he speaks the truth as he sees it, and he lets other people react to it how they want. Um, And that's going to get him in a ton of trouble. But Joseph serves God. He doesn't serve his brothers, and he doesn't serve the baker. So it doesn't serve Joseph to say things to try to make him feel better about themselves. Matthew 6 and Luke 16 say no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or else he'll hold the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and man. This is what separates Joseph from the crowd. This is why he's easy to misinterpret. He gave up trying to please people a long time ago when he told on his brothers. He chose truth over making people around him happy. People in authority want him around because he's truthful. And when you are in authority, everybody says nice things to you because they want things from you. That was It was really fun at Bethel for the first month because everybody wanted stuff. So they'd all come in and be super friendly. But what they really, they just want things. And what you're looking for when you're a leader are people you can trust to tell you the truth and not sugarcoat it for you. We watch a show, Blue Bloods, once in a while. And the police commissioner in that show has people in his office that argue with him. But as a leader, that's what you want. You want people that will argue with you, even if it means you might get fire them, because they'd rather tell you the truth because they care enough about you to give you good information. 
that's the kind of guy Joseph is. And I keep saying this because I'm fighting against the Sunday school version in my head, right? I, I know I'm not arguing with anybody, but this is the kind of Joseph to me that just makes more sense and is far more biblical. It's the exact same trait that makes his boss love him, that makes his peers hate him, right? It's the same personality type. Kierkegaard called this leveling. When you rise above the herd even a little bit, the rest of the herd will try to cut you off like a lawnmower and herd you. Have you ever seen that? So Kierkegaard calls that leveling. He's a, a philosopher. Um, but as Joseph rises above his peers, his peers hate him. Um, they want to keep him at his level. It's the same thing with us. We can't serve the people around us. We have to serve God, and we do that by serving our masters, whoever our employer is, our boss, our professors, our parents. We serve those people that God's put in authority over us, and we do it with a good and a glad heart, and that'll make some people happy and some people upset. And it's definitely something to think about when you're in the workplace. So Joseph's a tell-it-like-it-is guy. There's no sugarcoating. Listen to how he handles the baker. I was also in my dream, this is the baker speaking, and there were three white baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. How do you interpret a dream like that? Like, I'm thinking, why would that disturb you so much? That's So that dream made you upset? And that, yes, sometimes dreams make you upset. I used to dream of a giant spaghetti ball that would be rolling down the hill, and I couldn't move. And the spaghetti ball was coming down the hill, and it was so huge. It was like the size of a planet that I was just a little pinprick in it, and then the spaghetti ball would hit me and roll over me, and I wouldn't be able to, and I would just be surrounded by spaghetti. And I would wake up, cold sweat, total nightmare, disturbed, unsettled, and then I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and the answer, I still to this day don't know, but... Obviously, this guy had a dream. He had some baskets on his head, and the birds started eating the bread that was meant for Pharaoh, and that bothered him. But at this point, he's, I think, looking for a good report from Joseph. And Joseph says in verse 18, so Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. The guy's thinking, good, three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh from you. No, that's not what I was hoping he would say. Very similar dreams. Joseph has an inspired interpretation. He uses the exact same confidence with the baker that he used with the butler. Joseph plays a role in setting these prisoners free. They're both going to get free. One's going to be free from life, and one's going to be free from prison. He gives hope to the hopeless, and he gives judgment for the wicked. Joseph acts and speaks for God. And it's true today. There's hope for the hopeless, and there's judgment for the wicked. That's a super hard message for the wicked to hear. And they hear that message, and they think, you must be a hater because you think I'm going to go to hell. No, I'm just reading what the Bible says. And Joseph sends one back to the Pharaoh, and one he predicts is going to hang his head. Joseph's not culpable in that. He's just speaking the truth of it. And I think there's a, it's a great phrase, God doesn't send people to hell. We're already on our way to hell. God saves people from hell. And the hope is that people would be saved from that kind of judgment because they would turn from their wickedness, but it's their wickedness that sends them on that path. I know that's a detour and kind of a downer, but if you're the baker, 
a moment of downer is probably appropriate when reading this chapter. Like that's not a good message for him to hear. Another thought, why do they both get sent to jail and why does Pharaoh free one and not the other? One is his wine person. The butler brings the wine and the baker brings the food. So this is his food and drink person. And most kings in that era would have a taster and I'm guessing the taster got sick and died. So he sends both of them to prison until he can figure it out. Takes about three days to do the detective work and he figures out who was, who the culprit was. Probably grabbed a couple more tasters and said, you try just the wine, you try just the food and we'll at least eliminate one of these two people. So after three days, they bring back one and they kill the other. So I'm thinking the baker knew what he was up to and that he was probably guilty in this situation and knew what was going on. Anyways, I'm, the Bible doesn't say that. I'm just trying to imagine like, how, did, how might this have played out? So verse 20, now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, <laughs> just a detail, that he made for a feast of all his servants and he lifted up the head. So it could have just been that the Pharaoh wanted a very special birthday and he was just frustrated. Was, Both of you get out of my sight. I want nothing to do with either of you. No, he can't possibly serve that for my birthday. That he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. And then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand and he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. How many people would forget Joseph? Honestly, if you were in a jail for three days and this nice young man checked in on you every morning, heard your dreams, and then correctly interpreted the dream for both you and the other guy, who forgets somebody like that? This is a huge insult. So there's... Again, thinking through, why would you forget somebody? Could be the butler was just that arrogant and he just was up here in his head and Joseph was just some guy down in the prison. The butler might have thought it was chance that Joseph was just guessing. The butler might have been influenced by God to forget because that was God's timing. So the butler was miraculously forgetting. Um it could be that the butler just disregarded. Remember, Joseph kind of said, I'm innocent. When you go to visit a prison and meet new people and they say they're innocent, most of us doubt that, right? If you're in prison, you're probably guilty. Get over the I'm innocent thing. I met a guy who was in prison. He said he was innocent. So it could be the butler just disregarded him. Um, either way, from Joseph's perspective, sometimes people let you down. Sometimes people you help and you serve and you pour yourself out for let you down. And that's all, that's okay. God is still God and Joseph's still Joseph and he continues to have faith. Joseph thinking he might have gotten out in three days, it actually turns into two years. Years go by, had to be heartbreaking for Joseph to go through that. So in the two years I'm going to get from the next chapter that we'll get to. Um, I'm going to review just a little bit we saw the exact same pattern in this chapter that we saw with Potiphar's wife, just on the flip side. He serves both of them diligently and dutifully with humility. He declares God to them in the first interaction we see. He puts God out in front with both of them. Um, one of them, I think that takes courage to put God out in front, by the way. If you want all of your relationships where you're defined by the fact that you serve God, that takes some courage. I think it takes some strength 
to avoid wicked people and to speak boldly into the lives of people that are pursuing God. And those are kind of opposite sides of the same coin. It takes a lot of trust that if he runs away from Potiphar's wife, um, it takes a lot of trust for him to give that trust to the butler and the baker, actually the butler more than the baker, to hope that the butler will do what's right and the butler doesn't. So the butler lets him down and, um, but he actually puts trust in both relationships. He accepts the consequences in both situations. He goes to jail for Potiphar's wife and he accepts the results of staying in this place, in this prison, um, in this situation. In both cases, Joseph continues to have faith. We don't see evidence of complaining, arguing. He just continues to serve. So in chapter 41, we're going to see the exact same pattern in that he's going to go to Pharaoh. And in fact, I don't want to get too far into that chapter, but if you glance over there, he's even more courageous with Pharaoh. He puts God in front three times with Pharaoh, not just once. So he even gets bolder in his behaviors with putting God in front. He gets bolder with having courage. He tells Pharaoh like it is. So he gets even more truthful with Pharaoh. Like you get in front of Pharaoh, you kind of want to dress it up a little bit. We call it diplomacy, spinning a little bit, polishing the edges off. Joseph doesn't do any of that. Cold, hard truth with a guy that could end him in a moment. So he's even more trusting with Pharaoh than he is with the butler and that he was with his parents and, and brothers and that he was with Potiphar and his wife. And he accepts the results with Pharaoh too. Only the results with Pharaoh are he's going to get to run the whole kingdom. Not a duty most of us would want on our shoulders. Joseph just does it. He accepts the consequences of doing what God tells him to do. And those consequences can be going to jail or they can be running a country. And Joseph's going to see both of those. But his patterns... And the way he lives out his life stays amazingly consistent. Humility, courage, strength, trust, rejoicing, and faith. Over and over and over again with Joseph. The world changes how it reacts to Joseph, but Joseph doesn't really change. He's a stable, faithful guy. And it's why his dad trusted him. It's why Potiphar trusted him. It's why the jailer trusted him. And it's why the Pharaoh's going to trust him in the next chapter, which we'll get to with Grant teaching next week and he gets to teach that so i've already set you up for doing it so let's say a word of prayer dear lord and king we're just finding our way through life lord and we're ambling through lord and we're trying to discover and be faithful lord we thank you for godly role models in our life lord i thank you for my grandparents and i thank you for my parents i thank you for those people that have gone before me that were just solid faithful good people that i can model myself after Lord, we thank, thank you for Joseph and just another model of a faithful, trustworthy person, Lord, who does his job over and over and over again. Lord, he speaks truth as though he doesn't care what people will think of it, Lord, because he's more fearful of you than he is of the people around him. Lord, I pray for that kind of courage in us. May we be blunt and honest and truthful, not to hurt people, Lord, but to minister to people. And sometimes people need to hear that God loves them, and sometimes, God, people need to hear that they're living in sin and that they need to turn from that sin and get themselves right with you. Lord, may we be courageous. May we be strong. Lord, I love the image tonight of just Joseph putting you in front with every one of his relationships and how that angers some people, but it draws other people to him. Um, and in all things, Lord, he honors you, and he honors you with his tone, with his voice, with his compassion. And we just thank you for that role model. Lord, we thank you that you came in the form of Jesus, Lord, that you um, 
visited this earth and gave us another perfect role model of someone who didn't complain, who told the truth, who did it with strength and courage. And Lord, some of us loved you and some of us sought to kill you because that's what people do, Lord. And we just pray that we can be like you, that we can follow that role model and that we can live our lives, Lord. And we pray for the good things to come our way. But Lord, when the trials come our way, help us to continue to be consistent, to honor you, lift you up and praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.